Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part three of our July 2012 Hot Topics. And I'm going to pick up where I left off last time, talking about the chest. And speaking about uh, a good article Pam Johnson just wrote, Thoracic Endovascular Aortic Repair, Review of the Literature with Emphasis on the Role of uh, Multi-Detector CT and 3D Imaging. We are seeing a lot more thoracic endovascular aortic repairs. Jim Black at Hopkins is an expert. Often very complicated surgeries, sometimes grafts to the carotids or subclavians and subclavian to axillary artery. Again, very important surgeries in patients with aneurysms, particularly older patients, patients with ulcerations, intramural hematomas, patients with trauma, a wide range of possible things. And radiologists play an integral role in patient selection, procedural planning, and post-procedural follow-up. And um, in this article, we spoke about some of the techniques involved, the importance of non-contrast CT, arterial phase imaging with 3D mapping, and delayed phase imaging. We talk about the importance of the entire process. The imaging becomes very critical. So the technologists, make sure you have good protocols for data acquisition, and make sure you also have good post-processing protocols. Thin section CTs, 0.75 by 0.5 are critical. Uh, if you're also looking at the ascending aorta, gated acquisitions become critical. So very important to look at protocols. This article does provide some of them. Now, in terms of the chest, I mentioned before about the iPad, uh, the, its role in diagnosis of pulmonary embolism, that we could do PE diagnosis as well on an iPad as we can with a PAC system. Now, again, you have to make certain you have the right iPad. We use WebViewer. But whatever you do, don't assume it's the iPad. It's the software that really makes a difference. And so you want to use the right software. But this really expands our potential for remote reading, for doing consultation, for clinicians discussing things with us. I think it's a very important part of what we do. This was a very well-done study, 50 cases, some positive, some negative. Two faculty members reading it on PACs and on iPads at different times. All de-identified studies, IRB-approved study. Again, the accuracy was the same. And here's the quote. CT interpretation on an iPad enabled accurate identification of pulmonary embolism equivalent to display on the PACs. Very, very critical. And this is only the beginning. I can tell you we've not written it up, but I look at cardiac CT and the accuracy of iPad and the accuracy of a monitor end up being the same. Okay, what else? Cardiac CT, what's new there? I read a good article talking about HIV infection and cardiac complications, many different complications, myocardial, endocardial, pericardial, and vascular diseases. Uh, the complications are caused by HIV infection itself, opportunistic infections, HIV-related tumors, and the side effects of highly active antiretroviral therapy. And here is a list of the different complications. The ones we've seen a lot of have been cardiac tumors, particularly B-cell lymphoma, but often you don't know it's an AIDS patient, but you have to think about the range of possibilities. We know premature coronary artery disease. We've scanned a lot of patients with Dr. Lai's studies at Hopkins. Uh, again, the combination, many of these patients are also due drug abuse, and so it's hard to separate whether the process, the vasculitis is due to drug abuse or it's due to HIV but uh, both will cause increased incidence of vasculitis. And when you talk about cardiac tumors, they comment that Kaposi is, is the most common, though I haven't seen much Kaposi's. I've seen more B-cell lymphoma, 
And then when I see B-cell lymphoma, which typically involves the right atrium with pericardial and pleural effusions, but I've also seen small bowel involvement or gastric involvement. So when you see a cardiac mass and you see an abdominal mass and a small bowel or stomach, you better be thinking B-cell lymphoma. That's the best thing to be thinking about. What else? Liver, a few good articles. This article was very nice by Santiago about cystic lesions of the biliary tree, making the point that congenital cystic lesions include ductal plate malformations and colodocal cysts that can be recognized by their characteristic imaging findings and basic knowledge of the embryologic development of the biliary tree. So they speak about five things, Van Meyerberg complexes, congenital hepatic fibrosis, polycystic liver disease, Corollis, and colodocal cyst. Now, none of them are all that common. The von Meyerberg complexes are the ones that are most common and least commonly called. They're under 0.5 millimeter in size, cystic, solid, or mixed, and do not communicate with the biliary tree. These are often those two smaller classified lesions we see on CT. They're often multiple. They look like cysts because they're so small you can't measure them. So something to consider. They're benign. It's a leave-alone lesion. Congenital hepatic fibrosis is commonly associated with polycystic kidney disease. Enlargement of portal spaces due to the presence of fibrosis and numerous more or less ectatic abnormal bile ducts communicating with the biliary tree. You commonly see portal hypertension without liver insufficiency, hypertrophy of lateral segment of the left lobe, and normal volume or hypertrophy of segments 4A and 4B are indeed very common. So it's another entity to think about. Polycystic liver disease, often seen half the time at least with polycystic kidney disease. These cysts can get very large. They can hemorrhage, cause infection. They can calcify. There's no increased incidence of cancer. There's associated duct dilatation may occur, and the patients often have large abdominal masses because the cysts and liver can get very large. And then you combine that when you have polycystic kidney disease, and there's no space for normal organs. We also talk about Corolli's disease, which is an autosomal dominant disease. You see intrahepatic duct dilatation up to 5 centimeters. These dilated ducts may contain calcifications or sludge or both. Complications include cholangitis, cirrhosis, and cholangiocarcinoma, and a central duct sign is classic. Very important about Corolli's disease is that increased incidence of cholangiocarcinoma. Now, I mentioned before the importance of dual energy CT and uh, where it's going. In the liver, the comment is perhaps looking for gallbladder disease, but also for looking at uh, the ability to quantify hepatic iron accumulation within the liver, even uh, without the confounding factors of hepatic steatosis. Uh, dual energy CT can be used for diagnosing clinically important hepatic iron accumulation uh, Joe et al. determined with a sensitivity of 80% and specificity of 90%. So again, one more application. As we look for dual energy imaging, this becomes a very important thing is what applications can do with dual energy. We know bone removal works well, so think about carotids, think about runoffs. We know gout works well. Who does many gout patients, but that works out all right. So you need applications to really make this process hum. What else can I speak about? our practice and changes in practice. Important article, something you're gonna be impacted on soon. Implementation of evidence-based computerized clinical decision support. Those are the words, clinical decision support in the ED was associated with a significant decrease in usage and increase in yield of CT pulmonary angiography for the evaluation of pulmonary embolism. 
And in fact, this evidence, this implementation of evidence-based computerized clinical decision support in the ER was associated with a 20.1% decrease in the use of CT pulmonary angiography. And then they went on to say also, the diagnostic yield of CT pulmonary angiography for pulmonary embolism increased 69% in the emergency department after clinical decision support was implemented. The ACR is working very closely on this clinical decision support. It's a way of potentially decreasing usage and decreasing radiation dose. You want to make certain the clinician is ordering the right study for the right patient for the right reasons. You want to make certain that the patient studies are done correctly, but this is all pre-doing the study. You want to make certain that the patient's studies are being selected correctly, and decision support becomes very important, um, and that's something I think you're going to see as a major, major topic in the coming years. I put down what else? What else have I seen? Um, I've been to a couple meetings. I was at the old Stanford course. Now it's called the ISCT meeting in San Francisco the other week. And some of the hot topics indeed were how you decrease dose, the various ways, the different techniques you can decrease dose. Also, how do you manage patient selection? How do you manage protocols? How do you optimize your practice? Some new things with tumor perfusion and imaging of perfusion. Uh, new ways, uh, new software techniques for optimizing the quality of CT scans, particularly cardiac. So I think we are living through an era where there's rapid change in CT, which is very nice. Dose still is the biggest issue. How do we minimize the dose yet maximize the information? The big push is on this iterative reconstruction. Everybody's providing it and trying to do that well. Other things from... Uh, as I mentioned, iterative reconstruction to dual energy, which eliminates studies, to using lower KVP, 80 KVP even, to using lower MAS. All of these emerging techniques are coming together. The key for us as radiologists is to figure out in a practice which one makes sense, which ones can we implement, how do we design the optimal protocol for each and every patient. And indeed, that's a challenge, but it's a challenge I think we're up to, and it's a challenge we have no choice but to meet. So with that, I'll stop there, and I hope you have a great day. Thanks a lot. Bye.